Chapter Twelve of France and England in North America, Part Five. Count Frontenac, New France, Louis the Fourteenth, by Francis Parkman Jr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve, sixteen ninety, Massachusetts attacks Quebec. When Frontenac sent his war parties against New York and New England it was in the hope not only of reanimating the canadians but also of teaching the iroquois that they could not safely rely on english aid and of inciting the abernakis to renew their attacks on the border settlements he imagined too that the british colonies could be chastised into prudence and taught a policy of conciliation towards their canadian neighbours but he mistook the character of these bold and vigorous though not martial communities the plan of a combined attack on canada seems to have been first proposed by the iroquois and new york and several governments of new england smarting under french and indian attacks hastened to embrace it early in may a congress of their delegates was held in the city of new york it was agreed that the colony of that name should furnish four hundred men and massachusetts plymouth and connecticut three hundred and fifty-five jointly while the iroquois afterwards added their worthless pledge to join the expedition with nearly all their warriors the colonial militia were to rendezvous at albany and there advance upon montreal by way of lake champlain mutual jealousies made it difficult to agree upon a commander but winthrop of connecticut was at length placed at the head of the feeble and discordant band while montreal was thus assailed by land massachusetts and the other new england colonies were invited to attack quebec by sea a task formidable in difficulty and in cost and one that imposed on them an inordinate share in the burden of the war massachusetts hesitated she had no money and she was already engaged in a less remote and less critical enterprise during the winter her commerce had suffered from french cruisers which found convenient harbourage at port royal whence all the hostile indians were believed to draw supplies seven vessels with two hundred and eighty sailors were impressed and from four to five hundred militiamen were drafted for the service that rugged son of new england sir william phipps was appointed to the command he sailed from nantasket at the end of april reached port royal on the eleventh of may landed his militia and summoned Manaval the governor to surrender the port though garrisoned by about seventy soldiers was scarcely in condition to repel an assault and Menneval yielded without resistance, first stipulating, according to French accounts, that private property should be respected, the church left untouched, and the troops sent to Quebec or to France. It was found, however, that during the parley a quantity of goods belonging partly to the king and partly to merchants of the place had been carried off and hidden in the woods. Phipps thought this a sufficient pretext for plundering the merchants, imprisoning the troops, and desecrating the church we cut down the cross writes one of his followers rifled their church pulled down their high altar and broke their images the houses of the two priests were also pillaged the people were promised security to life liberty and property on condition of swearing allegiance to king william and queen mary which says the journalist they did with great acclamation and thereupon they were left unmolested the lawful portion of the booty included twenty-one pieces of cannon with a considerable sum of money belonging to the king the smaller articles many of which were taken from the merchants and from such of the settlers as refused the oath were packed in hogsheads and sent on board the ships phipps took no measures to secure his conquest though he commissioned a president and six councillors chosen from the inhabitants to govern the settlement till farther orders from the crown or from the authorities of massachusetts 
the president was directed to constrain nobody in the matter of religion and he was assured of protection and support so long as he remained faithful to our government that is the government of massachusetts the little puritan commonwealth already gave itself airs of sovereignty phipps now sent captain alden who had already taken possession of st castin's post at penobscot to seize upon la heve chedabucto and other stations on the southern coast then after providing for the reduction of the settlements at the head of the bay of fundy he sailed with the rest of the fleet for boston where he arrived triumphant on the thirteenth of may bringing with him as prisoners the french governor fifty-nine soldiers and two priests petit and trouvet massachusetts had made an easy conquest of all acadia a conquest however which had neither the men nor the money to secure by sufficient garrisons the conduct of the new england commander in this affair does him no credit it is true that no blood was spilt and no revenge taken for the repeated butcheries of unoffending and defenceless settlers it is true also that the french appear to have acted in bad faith but phipps on the other hand displayed a scandalous rapacity charlevoix says that he robbed meneval of all his money but meneval himself affirms that he gave it to the english commander for safe keeping and that phipps and his wife would return neither the money nor various other articles belonging to the captive governor whereof the following are specified six silver spoons six silver forks one silver cup in the shape of a gondola a pair of pistols three new wigs a grey vest four pair of silk garters two dozen of shirts six vests of dimity four nightcaps with lace edgings all my table service of fine tin all my kitchen linen and many other items which give an amusing insight into meneval's housekeeping meneval with the two priests was confined in a house at boston under guard he says that he petitioned the governor and council for redress but as they have little authority and stand in fear of phipps who is supported by the rabble to which he himself once belonged and of which he is now the chief they would do nothing for me this statement of meneval is not quite correct for an order of the council is on record requiring phipps to restore his chest and clothes and as the order received no attention governor bradstreet wrote to the refractory commander a note enjoining him to obey it at once phipps thereupon gave up some of the money and the worst part of the clothing still keeping the rest after long delay the council released meneval upon which phipps and the populace whom he controlled demanded that he should be again imprisoned but the honest people of the town took his part his persecutor was forced to desist and he set sail covertly for france this at least is his own account of the affair as phipps was to play a conspicuous part in the events that immediately followed some notice of him will not be amiss he is said to have been one of twenty-six children all of the same mother and was born in sixteen fifty at a rude border settlement since called woolwich on the kennebec his parents were ignorant and poor and till eighteen years of age he was employed in keeping sheep such a life ill-suited his active and ambitious nature to better his condition he learned the trade of ship carpenter and in the exercise of it came to boston where he married a widow with some property beyond him in years and much above him in station about this time he learned to read and write though not too well for his signature is like that of a peasant still aspiring to greater things he promised his wife that he would one day command a king's ship and own a fair brick house in the green lane of north boston a quarter then occupied by citizens of the better class he kept his word at both points fortune was inauspicious to him for several years 
till at length under the pressure of reverses he conceived the idea of conquering fame and wealth at one stroke by fishing up the treasure said to be stored in a spanish galleon wrecked fifty years before somewhere in the west indian seas full of this project he went to england where through influences which do not plainly appear he gained a hearing from persons in high places and induced the admiralty to adopt his scheme a frigate was given him and he sailed for the west indies whence after a long search he returned unsuccessful though not without adventures which proved his mettle it was the epoch of the buccaneers and his crew tired of a vain and toilsome search came to the quarter-deck armed with cutlasses and demanded of their captain that he should turn pirate with them phipps a tall and powerful man instantly fell upon them with his fists knocked down the ringleaders and awed them all into submission not long after there was a more formidable mutiny but with great courage and address he quelled it for a time and held his crew to their duty till he had brought the ship into jamaica and exchanged them for better men though the leaky condition of the frigate compelled him to abandon the search it was not till he had gained information which he thought would lead to success and on his return he inspired such confidence that the duke of albemarle with other noblemen and gentlemen gave him a fresh outfit and dispatched him again on his quixotic errand this time he succeeded found the wreck and took from it gold silver and jewels to the value of three hundred thousand pounds sterling the crew now leagued together to seize the ship and divide the prize and phipps pushed to the extremity was compelled to promise that every man of them should have a share in the treasure even if he paid it himself on reaching england he kept his pledge so well that after redeeming it only sixteen thousand pounds was left of his portion which however was an ample fortune in the new england of that day he gained too what he valued almost as much the honour of knighthood tempting offers were made him of employment in the royal service but he had an ardent love for his own country and thither he presently returned phipps was a rude sailor bluff prompt and choleric he never gave proof of intellectual capacity and such of his success in life as he did not owe to good luck was due probably to an energetic and adventurous spirit aided by a blunt frankness of address that pleased the great and commanded him to their favour two years after the expedition to port royal the king under the new charter made him governor of massachusetts a post for which though totally unfit he had been recommended by the elder mather who like his son cotton expected to make use of him he carried his old habits into his new office cudgelled brinton the collector of the port and belaboured captain short of the royal navy with his cane far from trying to hide the obscurity of his origin he leaned to the opposite foible and was apt to boast of it delighting to exhibit himself as a self-made man new england writers describe him as honest in private dealings but in accordance with his coarse nature he seems to have thought that anything is fair in war on the other hand he was warmly patriotic and was almost as ready to serve new england as to serve himself when he returned from port royal he found boston alive with martial preparation a bold enterprise was afoot massachusetts of her own motion had resolved to attempt the conquest of quebec she and her sister colonies had not yet recovered from the exhaustion of philip's war and still less from the disorders that attended the expulsion of the royal governor and his adherents the public treasury was empty and the recent expeditions against the eastern indians had been supported by private subscription worse yet new england had no competent military commander the puritan gentlemen of the original emigration 
some of whom were as well fitted for military as for civil leadership had passed from the stage and by a tendency which circumstances made inevitable they had left none behind them equally qualified the great indian conflict of fifteen years before had it is true formed good partisan chiefs and proved that the new england yeoman defending his family and his hearth was not to be surpassed in stubborn fighting but since andros and his soldiers had been driven out there was scarcely a single man in the colony of the slightest training or experience in regular war up to this moment new england had never asked help of the mother country when thousands of savages burst on her defenceless settlements she had conquered safety and peace with her own blood and her own slender resources but now as the proposed capture of quebec would inure to the profit of the british crown bradstreet and his council thought it not unfitting to ask for a supply of arms and ammunition of which they were in great need the request was refused and no aid of any kind came from the english government whose resources were engrossed by the irish war while waiting for the reply the colonial authorities urged on their preparations in the hope that the plunder of quebec would pay the expenses of its conquest humility was not among the new england virtues and it was thought a sin to doubt that god would give his chosen people the victory over papists and idolaters yet no pains were spared to ensure the divine favour a proclamation was issued calling the people to repentance a day of fasting was ordained and as mather expresses it the wheel of prayer was kept in continual motion the chief difficulty was to provide funds an attempt was made to collect a part of the money by private subscription but as this plan failed the provisional government already in debt stained its credit yet farther and borrowed the needful sums thirty-two trading and fishing vessels great and small were impressed for the service the largest was a ship called the six friends engaged in the dangerous west india trade and carrying forty-four guns a call was made for volunteers and many enrolled themselves but as more were wanted a press was ordered to complete the number so rigorously was it applied that what with voluntary and enforced enlistment one town that of gloucester was deprived of two-thirds of its fencible men there was not a moment of doubt as to the choice of commander for phipps was imagined to be the very man for the work one john wally a respectable citizen of barnstable was made second in command with the modest rank of major and a sufficient number of shipmasters merchants master mechanics and substantial farmers were commissioned as subordinate officers about the middle of july the committee charged with the preparations reported that all was ready still there was a long delay the vessel sent early in spring to ask aid from england had not returned phipps waited for her as long as he dared and the best of the season was over when he resolved to put to sea the rustic warriors duly formed into companies were sent on board and the fleet sailed from nantasket on the ninth of august including sailors it carried twenty-two hundred men with provisions for four months but insufficient ammunition and no pilot for the st lawrence while massachusetts was making ready to conquer quebec by sea the militia of the land expedition against montreal had mustered at albany their strength was even less than what was at first proposed for after the disaster at casco massachusetts and plymouth had recalled their contingents to defend their frontiers the rest decimated by dysentery and smallpox began their march to lake champlain with bands of mohawk oneida and mohegan allies the western iroquois were to join them at the lake and the combined force was then to attack the head of the colony while phipps struck at its heart 
frontenac was at quebec during most of the winter and the early spring when he had dispatched the three war parties whose hardy but murderous exploits were to bring this double storm upon him he had an interval of leisure of which he had made a characteristic use the english and the iroquois were not his only enemies he had opponents within as well as without and he counted as among them most of the members of the supreme council here was the bishop representing that clerical power which had clashed so often with the civil rule here was that ally of the jesuits the independent champigny who when frontenac arrived had written mournfully to versailles that he would do his best to live at peace with him here with villeray and auteuil whom the governor had once banished damour whom he had imprisoned and others scarcely more agreeable to him they and their clerical friends had conspired for his recall seven or eight years before they had clung to denonville that faithful son of the church in spite of all his failures and they had seen with troubled minds the return of king stork in the person of the haughty and irascible count he on his part felt his power the country was in deadly need of him and looked to him for salvation while the king had shown him such marks of favour that for the moment at least his enemies must hold their peace now therefore was the time to teach them that he was their master whether trivial or important the occasion mattered little what he wanted was a conflict and a victory or submission without a conflict the supreme council had held its usual weekly meeting since frontenac's arrival but as yet he had not taken his place at the board though his presence was needed auteuil the attorney-general was thereupon deputed to invite him he visited the count at his apartment in the chateau but could get from him no answer except that the council was able to manage its own business and that he would come when the king's service should require it the councillors divined that he was waiting for some assurance that they would receive him with befitting ceremony and after debating the question they voted to send four of their number to repeat the invitation and begged the governor to say what form of reception would be agreeable to him frontenac answered that it was for them to propose the form and that when they did so he would take the subject into consideration the deputies returned and there was another debate a ceremony was devised which it was thought must needs be acceptable to the count and the first councillor villeray repaired to the chateau to submit it to him after making him an harangue of compliment and protesting the anxiety of himself and his colleagues to receive him with all possible honour he explained the plan and assured frontenac that if not wholly satisfactory it should be changed to suit his pleasure to which says the record monsieur the governor only answered that the council could consult the bishop and other persons acquainted with such matters the bishop was consulted but pleaded ignorance another debate followed and the first councillor was again dispatched to the chateau with proposals still more deferential than the last and full power to yield in addition whatever the governor might desire frontenac replied that though they had made proposals for his reception when he should present himself at the council for the first time they had not informed him what ceremony they meant to observe when he should come to the subsequent sessions this point also having been thoroughly debated villeray went again to the count and with great deference laid before him the following plan that whenever it should be his pleasure to make his first visit to the council four of its number should repair to the chateau and accompany him with every mark of honour to the palace of the intendant where the sessions were held and that on his subsequent visits two councillors should meet him at the head of the stairs and conduct him to his seat the envoy farther protested that if this failed to meet his approval the council would conform itself to all his wishes on the subject 
frontenac now demanded to see the register in which the proceedings on the question at issue were recorded villeray was directed to carry it to him the records had been cautiously made and after studying them carefully he could find nothing at which to cavil he received the next deputation with great affability told them that he was glad to find that the council had not forgotten the consideration due to his office and his person and assured them with urbane irony that had they offered to accord him marks of distinction greater than they felt were due he would not have permitted them thus to compromise their dignity having too much regard for the honour of a body of which he himself was the head then after thanking them collectively and severally he graciously dismissed them saying that he would come to the council after easter or in about two months during four successive mondays he had forced the chief dignitaries of the colony to march in deputations up and down the rugged road from the intendant's palace to the chamber of the chateau where he sat in solitary state a disinterested spectator might see the humour of the situation but the council felt only its vexations frontenac had gained his point the enemy had surrendered unconditionally having settled this important matter to his satisfaction he again addressed himself to saving the country during the winter he had employed gangs of men in cutting timber in the forests hewing it into palisades and dragging it to quebec nature had fortified the upper town on two sides by cliffs almost inaccessible but it was open to attack in the rear and frontenac with a happy provision of approaching danger gave his first thoughts to strengthening this its only weak side the work began as soon as the frost was out of the ground and before midsummer it was well advanced at the same time he took every precaution for the safety of the settlements in the upper parts of the colony stationed detachments of regulars at the stockade forts which denonville had built in all the parishes above three rivers and kept strong scouting parties in continual movement in all the quarters most exposed to attack troops were detailed to guard the settlers at their work in the fields and officers and men were enjoined to use the utmost vigilance nevertheless the iroquois war parties broke in at various points burning and butchering and spreading such terror that in some districts the fields were left untilled and the prospects of the harvest ruined towards the end of july frontenac left major prevost to finish the fortifications and with the intendant champigny went up to montreal the chief point of danger here he arrived on the thirty-first and a few days after the officer commanding the fort at lachine sent him a messenger in hot haste with the startling news that lake st louis was all covered with canoes nobody doubted that the iroquois were upon them again cannon were fired to call in the troops from the detached posts when alarm was suddenly turned to joy by the arrival of other messengers to announce that the newcomers were not enemies but friends they were the indians of the upper lakes descending from michilimackinac to trade at montreal nothing so auspicious had happened since frontenac's return the messages he had sent them in the spring by louvigny and perrault reinforced by the news of the victory on the ottawa and the capture of schenectady had had the desired effect and the iroquois prisoner whom their missionary had persuaded them to torture had not been sacrificed in vain despairing of an english market for their beaver-skins they had come as of old to seek one from the french on the next day they all came down the rapids and landed near the town there were fully five hundred of them hurons ottawas ojibwas potawatomies crees and nipissings with a hundred and ten canoes laden with beaver-skins to the value of nearly a hundred thousand crowns nor was this all 
for a few days after la durantais late commander at michilimackinac arrived with fifty-five more canoes manned by french traders and filled with valuable furs the stream of wealth dammed back so long was flowing upon the colony at the moment when it was most needed never had canada known a more prosperous trade than now in the midst of her danger and tribulation it was a triumph for frontenac if his policy had failed with the iroquois it had found a crowning success among the tribes of the lakes having painted greased and befeathered themselves the indians mustered for the grand council which always preceded the opening of the market the ottawa orator spoke of nothing but trade and with a regretful memory of the cheapness of english goods begged that the french would sell them at the same rate the huron touched upon politics and war declaring that he and his people had come to visit their old father and listen to his voice being well assured that he would never abandon them as others had done nor fool away his time like de nonville in shameful negotiations for peace and he exhorted frontenac to fight not the english only but the iroquois also till they were brought to reason if this is not done he said my father and i shall perish but come what may we will perish together i answered writes frontenac that i would fight the iroquois till they came to beg for peace and that i would grant them no peace that did not include all my children both white and red for i was the father of both alike now ensued a curious scene frontenac took a hatchet brandished it in the air and sang the war-song the principal frenchman present followed his example the christian iroquois of the two neighboring missions rose and joined them and so also did the hurons and the algonquins of lake nipissing stamping and screeching like a troop of madmen while the governor led the dance whooping like the rest his predecessor would have perished rather than play such a part in such company but the punctilious old courtier was himself half indian at heart as much at home in a wigwam as in the halls of princes another man would have lost respect in indian eyes by such a performance in frontenac it aroused his audience to enthusiasm they snatched the preferred hatchet and promised war to the death then came a solemn war feast two oxen and six large dogs had been chopped to pieces for the occasion and boiled with a quantity of prunes two barrels of wine with abundant tobacco were also served out to the guests who devoured the meal in a species of frenzy all seemed eager for war except the ottawas who had not forgotten their late dalliance with the iroquois a christian mohawk of the sault st louis called them to another council and demanded that they should explain clearly their position thus pushed to the wall they no longer hesitated but promised like the rest to do all that their father should ask their sincerity was soon put to the test an iroquois convert called la plaque a notorious reprobate though a good warrior had gone out as a scout in the direction of albany on the day when the market opened and trade was in full activity the buyers and sellers were suddenly startled by the sound of the death yell they snatched their weapons and for a moment all was confusion when la plaque who had probably meant to amuse himself at their expense made his appearance and explained that the yells proceeded from him the news that he brought was however sufficiently alarming he declared that he had been at lake st sacrament or lake george and had seen there a great number of men making canoes as if about to advance on montreal frontenac thereupon sent the chevalier de clermont to scout as far as lake champlain clermont soon sent back one of his followers to announce that he had discovered a party of the enemy and that they were already on their way down the richelieu frontenac ordered cannon to be fired to call in the troops 
crossed the st lawrence followed by all the indians and encamped with twelve hundred men at la prairie to meet the expected attack he waited in vain all was quiet and the ottawa scouts reported that they could find no enemy three days passed the indians grew impatient and wished to go home neither english nor iroquois had shown themselves and frontenac satisfied that their strength had been exaggerated left a small force at la prairie recrossed the river and distributed the troops again among the neighboring parishes to protect the harvesters he now gave ample presents to his departing allies whose chiefs he had entertained at his own table and to whom says charlevoix he bade farewell with those engaging manners which he knew so well how to assume when he wanted to gain anybody to his interest scarcely were they gone when the distant cannon of la prairie boomed a sudden alarm the men whom la plaque had seen near lake george were a part of the combined force of connecticut and new york destined to attack montreal they had made their way along wood creek to the point where it widens into lake champlain and here they had stopped disputes between the men of the two colonies intestine quarrels in the new york militia who were divided between the two factions engendered by the late revolution the want of provisions the want of canoes and the ravages of smallpox had ruined an enterprise which had been mismanaged from the first there was no birch bark to make more canoes and owing to the lateness of the season the bark of the elms could not peel such of the iroquois as had joined them were cold and sullen and news came that the three western tribes of the confederacy terrified by the smallpox had refused to move it was impossible to advance and winthrop the commander gave orders to return to albany leaving phipps to conquer canada alone but first that the campaign might not seem wholly futile he permitted captain john schuyler to make a raid into canada with a band of volunteers schuyler left the camp at wood creek with twenty-nine whites and a hundred and twenty indians passed lake champlain descended the richelieu to chambly and fell suddenly on the settlement of la prairie whence frontenac had just withdrawn with his forces soldiers and inhabitants were reaping in the wheat-fields schuyler and his followers killed or captured twenty-five including several women he wished to attack the neighboring fort but his indians refused and after burning houses barns and hayricks and killing a great number of cattle he seated himself with his party at dinner in the adjacent woods while cannon answered cannon from chambly la prairie and montreal and the whole country was astir we thanked the governor of canada writes schuyler for his salute of heavy artillery during our meal the english had little to boast in this affair the paltry termination of an enterprise from which great things had been expected nor was it for their honour to adopt the savage and cowardly mode of warfare in which their enemies had led the way the blow that had been struck was less an injury to the french than an insult but as such it galled frontenac excessively and he made no mention of it in his dispatches to the court a few more iroquois attacks and a few more murders kept montreal in alarm till the tenth of october when matters of deeper import engaged the governor's thoughts a messenger arrived in haste at three o'clock in the afternoon and gave him a letter from prevost town major of quebec it was to the effect that an abenaki indian had just come over land from acadia with news that some of his tribe had captured an englishwoman near portsmouth who told them that a great fleet had sailed from boston to attack quebec frontenac not easily alarmed doubted the report nevertheless he embarked at once with the intendant in a small vessel which proved to be leaky and was near foundering with all on board 
he then took a canoe and towards evening set out again for quebec ordering some two hundred men to follow him on the next day he met another canoe bearing a fresh message from prevost who announced that the english fleet had been seen in the river and that it was already above tadoussac frontenac now sent back captain de ramsey with orders to calière governor of montreal to descend immediately to quebec with all the force at his disposal and to muster the inhabitants on the way then he pushed on with the utmost speed the autumnal storms had begun and the rain pelted him without ceasing but on the morning of the fourteenth he neared the town the rocks of cape diamond towered before him the st lawrence lay beneath them lonely and still and the basin of quebec outspread its broad bosom a solitude without a sail frontenac had arrived in time he landed at the lower town and the troops and the armed inhabitants came crowding to meet him he was delighted at their ardour shouts cheers and the waving of hats greeted the old man as he climbed the steep ascent of mountain street fear and doubt seemed banished by his presence even those who hated him rejoiced at his coming and hailed him as a deliverer he went at once to inspect the fortifications since the alarm a week before prevost had accomplished wonders and not only completed the works begun in the spring but added others to secure a place which was a natural fortress in itself on two sides the upper town scarcely needed defence the cliffs along the st lawrence and those along the tributary river st charles had three accessible points guarded at the present day by the prescott gate the hope gate and the palace gate prevost had secured them by barricades of heavy beams and casks filled with earth a continuous line of palisades ran along the strand of the st charles from the great cliff called the saut au matelot to the palace of the intendant at this latter point began the line of works constructed by frontenac to protect the rear of the town they consisted of palisades strengthened by a ditch and an embankment and flanked at frequent intervals by square towers of stone passing behind the garden of the ursuline they extended to a windmill on a hillock called mont carmel and thence to the brink of the cliffs in front here there was a battery of eight guns near the present public garden two more each of three guns were planted at the top of the Sault-au-Matelou, another at the barricade of the palace gate and another near the windmill of mont carmel while a number of light pieces were held in reserve for such use as occasion might require the lower town had no defensive works but two batteries each of three guns eighteen and twenty-four pounders were placed here at the edge of the river two days passed in completing these defences under the eye of the governor men were flocking in from the parishes far and near and on the evening of the fifteenth about twenty-seven hundred regulars and militia were gathered within the fortifications besides the armed peasantry of beauport and beaupre who were ordered to watch the river below the town and resist the english should they attempt to land at length before dawn on the morning of the sixteenth the sentinels on the saut-au-matelot could descry the slow-moving lights of distant vessels at daybreak the fleet was in sight sail after sail passed the point of orleans and glided into the basin of quebec the excited spectators on the rock counted thirty-four of them four were large ships several others were of considerable size and the rest were brigs schooners and fishing craft all thronged with men End of chapter twelve